This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So have you ever wondered why baby cats can get up a tree, but they often don't know how to get down a tree? Very important question. So when you see the fire trucks come, it's never because there's a little cat at the bottom of the tree going, meow, I want to get up the tree. It's always, I'm up the tree, but I don't know how to get down. Well, the brilliant um, scientist and autism advocate Temple Grandin has a theory about that. And the theory goes like this. Cats learn from their mother lots of things, including how to get down a tree. Cats instinctively know how to get up a tree. They got the claws, they got the mechanism, they got the technique, but they need to learn the technique for shimmying down the tree. And cats that don't learn that before they're separated from their mothers never learn it. That's her theory. It's a theory, but we do know there has been tons of research in the last few decades on animal learning. And we know that a lot of animal behavior is not instinctual. It is learned. It's learned behavior. So for instance, killer whales, tigers, cheetahs, lizards, different kinds of birds, ants, they've done all kinds of studies on these things showing that these creatures learn from their mother or father or the tribe or whatever how to do what they do. And when that doesn't happen, bad things can happen. So for instance, did you know that there is a global problem with elephant males? You know, you think there might be a crisis with young males in our culture. There's a crisis with young males in the elephant kingdom. And there's elephants, young male elephants, that are going on rampages in multiple continents, doing very terrible things, acting very badly as young elephant men, males. Um, and the reason is, is because through poaching, and environmental devastation and things like that, they've been separated from older bull elephant males and they don't know how to act. They haven't learned how to act like a male elephant is supposed to act. So you're wondering, very interesting biology lesson, but what does this have to do with Jesus and his church? You came to church today, right? Well, it actually has to do everything with how we are transformed to become more like Jesus as his followers. Canon Stephen Godier, one of his favorite verses is a verse in the New Testament that says that we are changed into the image of Jesus from glory to glory, from like one little step to one little step to one little step. How does that take place? Well, there's a lot of ways it takes place, but one of the ways it takes place, a crucial one, an indispensable one, is that we are transformed through face-to-face -face relationships in the church where we watch and learn and absorb and imitate the lives of other believers around us. I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to that first scripture reading that you heard, which is taken from the New Testament book of Acts, which was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, and that'll be important in a little bit because I'll refer to another passage that Luke wrote. So he wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote Acts of the Apostles. And as he began this 
passage that you heard read, that Karen read to you earlier, here's a little bit of the context. So for three years, Paul has spent time with his friends starting and building a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And he really loves these people. But he's going to get on a ship. He's in the city of Miletus right now. And he's going to get on a ship, and he's going to head towards Jerusalem, and he tells them, you are not going to see my face again. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and most likely I'm not coming back, and highly probably I'm going to face suffering, and I might die there. So get the leaders from this church, my friends in Ephesus, and have them come down to Miletus because I have some words I want to tell them. And so this speech that you heard read, that is Paul's farewell address to his good friends and leaders of the church in Ephesus. And his basic message is, is this. Imitate me as I have been imitating Christ. You saw my life. How are you going to stay rooted and keep growing? Because you won't see my face anymore. Remember my life. Verse 18, he begins, he says this. He kind of bookends these two statements. In verse 18 in Acts chapter 20, he says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. My life had a contour. It had a shape. It had a narrative to it. It had a character to it. And then in verse 34, he says the same thing. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. You saw how I lived my life. You know. You watched me. As Bishop Stewart often says, the Christian life is imitative. We imitate people who are following Jesus. The church is the place where we imitate one another. Now, doesn't that sound a little arrogant? For somebody to stand up, like, I don't care if he's Apostle Paul, but to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. How is that possible? How is that not arrogant? Well, keep in mind that the Apostle Paul also called himself the chief of sinners. He said, if there's a line for sinners, if there's a sinner line, here's all the sinners in the world. I am in the front of the line. I am the foremost sinner. Numero uno. I am the best at sinning because I know my own heart. Ain't nobody better than me. Nobody's ahead of me. So here's the shocking thing. God calls us in the church to imitate fellow sinners. Now let me be very careful here because he does not say we follow wolves. There are shepherds and there are wolves. So verse 29, Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Don't imitate those people. They are not imitatable. But imitate, you will always be imitating fallen, flawed sinners. And if you want a non-sinner to imitate, good luck finding one. Because you won't. And you won't find one in this church. How does this work? What does this look like? So in this passage that you heard read from Acts of the Apostles in the Bible, Paul gives 
three really concrete and specific instances of things that he says imitate me as I imitate Christ, a fellow sinner. Here's three ways to imitate. Imitate my affection, imitate my suffering, and imitate my grace living. First of all, imitate my affection. You can't read this passage without just feeling this. This is a, this is a highly emotional passage of Scripture. And, and I think the Lord wants us to feel this. He wants us to get the feeling in this biblical text. So verse 19, Paul says, You saw me, you know my life, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. And then again in verse 31, he says, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease to, night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He said, I admonished you with tears. The word admonish is a word, I, I warned you, I, I, was, I was strong with you, I told you the truth. And, and, and it was unpleasant. He said, but I did it with tears. So let me just say, do not trust preachers or leaders that won't tell you the hard stuff. They'll only tell you the stuff you want to hear. They're always bent on just pleasing you. Don't trust leaders and preachers like that. But also, don't trust leaders and preachers that they tell you the hard stuff, but they have no affection, no tenderness. This little message that Paul gives, it ends in verse 36, in this really moving, touching, tender scene. I'll read it to you. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with all of them, and there was much weeping on the part of them all. They embraced and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see his face again. There's that face-to-face -face relationship. And it says that they, he embraced and kissed them. That's exactly the same phrase that our writer Luke uses earlier in the Gospel of Luke when he tells the story of the parable of the prodigal son, this rebellious son who runs away and comes back, and everybody thinks he really deserves to get nailed, and the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. Exactly the same phrase. Only time it's, two times it's used in the Bible, that exact phrase. I think Luke wants us to, to know that the early church had experienced the affection of God the Father through the gospel of Jesus, and now they were displaying that to each other. How we need to recover a holy, face-to-face -face affection in the church. I said a few months ago, um, my dad, who died a couple years ago, I really grew to love more and more as, as he got older. Um, he grew up, his dad was an abusive alcoholic. He never learned affection from his dad. My dad gave me many things, many wonderful gifts. But one thing he was not able to give me was a lot of affection. So I grew up like, I never really saw that. How, like, how do you do that? I don't know. What is that? It was sort of like a blank. 
And I remember about 12, 15 years ago when I was pastoring out in Long Island, I just had some really important people in my life. They were asking me for something. They like they wanted something from me. And I, I didn't understand what they were asking for, but there was a theme. And, and I thought, they're just asking me to be more competent. They're asking me to try harder. They're asking me to work harder. And I figured out, it took me a long time to figure out, they're not asking for that. They're asking for my affection. It's like, I don't know how to give that. I moved here 11 years ago. And I got involved in this church. And for me, I saw women, but I also saw men who were able to display a holy affection. And I was like, in some ways, I was not necessarily re-fathered, but I got that fatherly gift of affection that I never got from my dad. I got it here through a lot of the people at this church, the leaders at this church. Paul is saying, you know how I lived. You saw my affection. It's the affection of God the Father. Ask for that affection in your own life. We also imitate, Paul also says, imitate my suffering. Now, it's not just suffering in general. It's not just hard things happen to us. That, that's a whole different topic. That's a beautiful topic. The Bible has a lot to say about this. But I think in particular, this is a particular kind of suffering. Let me define it this way. It is the, the risk, the uncertainty, the vulnerability, the hardship that we open our lives up to when we give ourselves to sharing the gospel with others. And as Paul will say later, especially with the weak and the marginalized. There is risk in that. There's uncertainty in that. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 20, he says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know what's going to happen. Uncertainty is a form of suffering, especially for people like many of us who, who like to and believe we can control our lives, manage the details of our life. Uncertainty is what many people around the globe experience, especially in the global world, what many of the poor experience on a daily basis, what many people throughout history have experienced, but a lot of us want to try to eliminate it. Paul says, if you're going to give your life to share the gospel, there will be uncertainty, and that will be a kind of suffering. Verse 23, he says, though, but I know this for sure, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It's uncertain, but I know I'm heading into this. Imprisonment and affliction. He's not looking for suffering. He's not like, oh, goody, I get to suffer. But he's like, that's the cost for following Jesus, a person, and being committed to him to spread the gospel to others. That is one of the costs. There's a journalist named... Um, Tracy Kidder, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, wrote a book for which he won the Pulitzer Prize called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Great example of narrative journalism. He tells the story of a man named Dr. Paul Farmer, who's a Harvard-trained uh, infectious disease specialist who moved to Haiti to start a hospital, work among the poorest of the poor, and also did probably more for anybody in the last couple decades to combat 
multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, which is one of the biggest killers on the planet. So at one point, Tracy Kidder's talking, talking to Dr. Paul Farmer, and Paul Farmer says that he loves WLs. I love WLs. And Tracy Kidder goes, what's a WL? White liberals. I love them to death. They give us lots of money. They're big fans of my organization. And then he pauses. He says, they're on our side. Then he pauses and he says, but WLs have a problem. They think that all the world's problems can be fixed without any cost to themselves. We don't believe that in the work I do, he says. There's a lot to be said for sacrifice and mercy. I was reading that and I go, yeah, that's so true. Now, what if we substituted WEs for WLs? White evangelicals. White evangelicals think that all the world's problems can be fixed without any cost to themselves. I'm one of these tribes. It's like, oh, if I changed it that way, ouch. You know, I don't like saying this, but poll after poll, and it's not just the lying media, poll after poll shows that white evangelicals as a group are very self-protective as a whole, that they are not very open, that we are not very open to vulnerability, risk, uncertainty, and hardship for the sake of the gospel. There's lots of exceptions. Lots of exceptions to that. I know many of them in this church. But as a group, we're not very open to that. Verse 24, Paul says this, but I do not, and here, here's the solution to that, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I want to show you something because the first time I read that verse was out of this Bible, which I get, has since had recovered, but I got it when I was 16 years old. So in case you're counting, that was like mm, over 45 years ago. So I got this Bible, and one of the first things I read and one of the first things I ever circled in any Bible at any time was Acts chapter 20, verse 24. And I wrote a little note in there. And it's not very profound, so I'm not going to read it to you. But I wrote a little note in there. <laughs> Because it, this verse really moved me. Here I was, a kid in the suburbs of Minneapolis, thinking that mostly life revolves around me, and life is about my comfort and my convenience and my success and my getting a degree and my going on to live a very comfortable life and retiring at a nice age and then eventually dying. And here I read this verse where here's this guy who's saying that there is something worth giving your life to. Someone worth giving your life to who is, it's worth the inconvenience. It's worth the vulnerability. It's worth the risk. It's worth the hardship because of him, because of who he is, and because, he, because he's what, what he's done. And Paul said, now my life is, it's got a finish line. It's got a goal. It's got a telos. It's got an end point. And that end point is to be faithful to him. The goal is not suffering. The goal is to be faithful to him. And that's where my joy comes from. And Paul says, you saw that in me. You watched me live that way. Now imitate that. 
There's one more thing he says to imitate, and that's at the end of verse 24, and he calls it in a really short phrase, but if you read the New Testament, actually read the Bible, this is really the story of the Bible in about five words. The end of verse 24, he calls it to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Boom. There's the living heartbeat of the whole biblical story, the whole life of the triune God. It's right there. What made Paul filled with so much affection? What empowered him to face suffering for the gospel? What called him to run the race? What motivated him to help the weak? What was it, despite of his sinfulness, but despite of the fact that he was the first of the line of sinners, what was it that he could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? It was the gospel of the grace of God, and Paul got that. He let it sink into his heart. It was the center of his life. Here's one brief definition of that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God knew the very worst about you, the, the most sinful sins about you, the most bent and distorted and just sometimes even dark things about you, and he still chose to love you, and he still chose to come for you, and he sought you, and he found you, and he redeemed you, and you are born again, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of this is a gift out of God's inner life poured out for you, and it's free, and you can't earn it. That is the gospel of the grace of God. And it is the hardest thing, the hardest gift for me to accept. For 45 years, I've been like, really, God? Really? You really meant that? Yeah, that's the gospel. And Paul says it's not just a nice idea, but it has the power to change us. So he says in verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. We live in a culture that is intent on tearing people down. And maybe there's good reasons for it. Who knows? But that can't be the last word. God's gospel is about ultimately, even when convicting us of sin, is to build us up, to restore us. That's the good news of the gospel. And Paul said... I'm not only the first in the line of sinners, but I'm the first, I'm the best example you'll ever find of how God can show mercy and patience to a sinner because I know my own heart, and I've experienced that. And I am like exhibit A in the courtroom of justice, of what God's grace looks like. And Paul says, I want you to imitate that. So you see how transformation works. I've just given you three examples. You, you, could, get, you could multiply this. Face-to-face -face encounters in the church in which we watch and learn 
and absorb like a sponge. Oh, give me some of that. Give me some of that. I want some of that, Lord. And then we imitate. And it's not only leaders. So in the book of Acts, we have Paul, Peter, the apostles. They're, they're kind of the front and center. But all throughout the book of Acts, there's all these little people, men and women, who are held up as examples of different Christ-like virtues and, and lifestyles. They've experienced the power of the resurrection. Jesus is alive in them. They've received the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we imitate them. The church is the home where every Sunday we come and we meet in res groups and we, we, we go around and we're just, we're just like watching all the time. Not like, who's going to mess up next? Or who, who's, who, who can I take down today? But the church is, now we hold each other accountable, don't get me wrong, but the church is primarily the place where we look and watch and go, who can I imitate today? What can I imitate? I was talking to two guys after the first service, two uh, guys about my age, and one of the guys says to the other guy, he says, man, I imitate you. And the other guy goes, no, I imitate you. And they almost started a fight right there in the hallway about who was more imitatable. And it was awesome. And it's like, that's the church. It's like, oh, man, he's so encouraging. Oh, man, she is so, she's, I just love her, her, her art and her creativity. And, uh, and, man, he just loves the unborn. He has a passion for the unborn. And, and she is so generous with her money. And that family is so hospitable. And one of the most amazing things as a pastor is that I know all of the, all my, my ordained friends up here would say the same thing. We get a front row seat. And we get to watch. We don't just see sin. We don't just see brokenness. We see the body of Christ. We see people who have qualities and lifestyle that's worth imitating. And it all flows from the Lord Jesus himself. It's all connected. So when we come to the Lord's table, we are seeing what we are ultimately supposed to imitate. And not only imitate, but Christ lives within us. We are asking Christ all week long. We're asking him, Lord Jesus, I'm not like you. I want to be more like you. I want to reflect you more. We can't do that in our own strength and power. He does that work in us as we watch and we pray, Lord, live in me. Capture my heart. Set my heart aflame with your affection. Strengthen it with your suffering love. Lavish it with the gospel of your grace. Lord, live in me so I can imitate you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.